Hey everyone and welcome back to Citywide Blackout, your home for the best creators from around the world. My name is Max, I'm your host, and today folks, we're taking a little bit of a journey here. We're, uh, we are heading up to Mount Kilimanjaro to speak to my, to my uh, next guest. His name is David Sklar. He has a recently released book, Moonstone Hero, which I gotta say is one of the coolest titles I've heard in quite some time. David, welcome to the show. It is great to have you here. Oh, it's great to be there. All right. Now, this book is, uh, as I have read, is partially based on a true story. I think first thing I got to ask is how much of it's true? A fair amount of it is actually true. So I did uh, actually climb Mount Kilimanjaro uh, in the 1970s. And uh, I was a medical student at that time. And there was uh, one of the people in our party who uh, became very ill up near the top of the mountain uh, and had a high altitude pulmonary edema. And uh, so I was involved in carrying him down and experience some of the things that uh, our main character, who's named Andrew, uh, experiences in the book. So that part is relatively true. Now, of course, you know, some of the dialogue and some of the um, other characters who are in the book are a little bit altered from what actually happened, but uh, much of at least the early part of the book is, is uh, relatively true and based on actual experience. Wow. Well, so so for the folks at home who did not go to medical school, could you, uh, layman's terms, what this person suffered from? Yeah. So when you climb a high mountain, sometimes some people, and it's unclear why, develop a fluid that uh, accumulates in your lungs. And um, that fluid um, really doesn't have anything to do with your heart failing the way it does, for example, when older people develop heart failure, they also get fluid. But this fluid goes in. And it probably has something to do with the low oxygen level um, as you get higher and higher. Some people have that reaction. Other people have more minor uh, mountain sickness, headache and nausea. Uh, thing. And I actually experienced that part of it. I did get a headache and did have some nausea. But um, others will develop this fluid that accumulates and essentially suffocates you. You can't get enough oxygen into your brain. Uh, some people also get swelling of the brain and they can die from that. But high altitude pulmonary edema is very serious and, and people die from it if you can't get them oxygen or can't get them off the mountain down to a lower altitude. Jeez. And this and this really happened. You you were uh, climbing the mountain. You were with a group and one of them suffered from this. Um, yes, this this really happened. Um, and what ac- the real um, story that this is based on one of the people who was an American uh, Peace Corps uh, uh, volunteer. And uh, he came very short of breath as we were climbing. And uh, although I was a second year medical student, I had never seen an actual case of pulmonary edema, although I, I had read about it. Uh, and I was, you know, to that extent, somewhat prepared for someone getting it, at least being able to diagnose it. But um, Unfortunately, the treatment is oxygen and getting people off the mountain. We had no oxygen. I guess I had hoped that the guides and people who were climbing with us would have some uh, medical uh, capability to to do something if if that happened. But as it turned out, this all really uh, accelerated in the middle of the night at at the top of the mountain when it was very cold and it was 15,000 feet. And, And so then... We had to make a decision 
what do we do? Do we try to carry this guy down? Do we try to wait till morning? And it became increasingly clear uh, as the night uh, became uh, deeper and deeper into the middle of the night uh, that he wasn't going to probably make it. Now, at that same time, um, a lot of the party was preparing themselves to try to uh, ascend to the uh, peak because that was the, the plan was to actually get to the very top of the mountain just at sunrise. And so typically what will happen is people will leave this last hut, which was at 15,000 feet, to get to 19,000 where you're at the very top. And then in theory, um, uh, the, the clouds and so on will uh, break up and you'll be able to see for 100 miles and uh, the sun will be shining and so on. It doesn't always happen that way. And at that time, it was, you know, weather wasn't good. There was snow and wind and cold and it was, it was very threatening. But that was what some of the people in the party who had really come from all over the world. They come from Germany and Australia and England and Denmark and so on. And they had come to, to achieve this sort of personal goal. And uh, suddenly when this person was becoming ill and we really needed people to help uh, get him down, they had to deal with um, you know this conflict of what do they do? And trying to carry him down would be risky too because uh, they could die in the process of trying to carry him down. Now, it turns out with Mount Kilimanjaro, there's a one peak and then there's a lower peak, which you have to then get over to go along this sort of thing that's called a saddle to get to the higher peak. Um, and so that it, it's not trivial to kind of get someone down because if they're having trouble breathing just without even walking, the more of their walking that they do, the more difficult it's going to be for them uh, to actually get down to the lower hut, which is at about 12,000 feet. Wow, geez, that's, and, and this and this all happens. So I'd like to talk about where you had to, I guess, where you sort of like filled in the blanks for the story, you know, like what were some of the parts of this just that, that didn't happen? Well, so the part that I've told you uh, did happen as far as actually carrying him down uh, you know, some of the conversation that occurred during the process of trying to carry him down or trying to, you know, initially we didn't think we were going to carry him down. I think the hope was that he would be able to walk um, and that as we walk, um, he would be able to slowly make it over the lower um, peak and uh, we wouldn't actually have to carry him because uh, carrying someone at, at 16 or 17,000 feet is almost impossible. But um, so unfortunately, that did happen. He got to a point where he just couldn't walk and he wanted to give up. He wanted to let us leave him there. And, um, you know, he was cold and he, he was numb in his feet. And so that, that part happened. You know, the conversation that we had about do we leave you here? What do we do? I think some of that was reconstructed. I'm not sure it actually happened exactly as I wrote it partly just because I, I'm not sure how much I actually remembered of, you know, the word for word, but there were definitely some very awkward conversations and there were some issues related to the relationship between um, him and his girlfriend and myself um, that uh, was were probably a little bit exaggerated uh, in the story because um, in the story, there is, there is a romance that uh, is sort of like a triangle that occurs and it's sort of part of the story. Um, 
And I will say that that was probably a bit exaggerated, although not that much. Wow. Okay. What made you want to write this in the first place? I mean, you you, you have published other books in the past, and of course, have have I read yes. many, 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 many uh, uh, medical articles. But why do this? Well, so what really uh, inspired me to do this was um, COVID, actually, and and COVID. Um, really forced a lot of us in medicine, and I'm still practicing as an emergency physician, by the way, but um, it really forced a lot of us to confront our own potential risk and mortality uh, going into hospitals and taking care of COVID patients. Uh, And particularly at the beginning when there wasn't really any vaccination uh, and even the uh, protective equipment was, was really inadequate. And so when we walked into the emergency department or the critical care part of the hospital, you know, we were really putting our own lives at risk, the nurses, the doctors. Uh, and so we had to make that decision. And I, and I do remember for myself, the first uh, month or two after COVID arrived in the U.S., that my wife was very resistant to my uh, going in because I'm a little older now and I was in a high risk group and she was, well, you know, there are younger people. Why don't you just let them uh, take the risk. You know, they're probably not going to die the way you will if you get this. And um, so I for, I would say for the first month or two after COVID arrived, I went along with her desires for me not to walk, work in the emergency department. But then after about a month or two, the, I realized this thing isn't going away. And I, I kind of felt like I needed to uh, be there with them and to kind of demonstrate that I was you know, I was willing to put my life at risk just like they were. And I started thinking about what experiences have I had in my life that, that were comparable. And this experience on Mount Kilimanjaro kind of came back to me thinking, well, you know, that was probably the closest I ever came to doing something that where I could have died. And, um, and I realized, okay, well, all these other people are now doing this and, and why is that? Are they really, are we all like superheroes or are we just doing our job? Or what is it that kind of gets us to kind of walk in day after day? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, you know, um, maybe it's just that, that we're just seeing this as part of, um, you know, what's expected, you know, what we're supposed to do and part of being a, you know, a, a good citizen in a sense. Uh, and and we aren't really you know any different from anybody else, but we're just willing to get in there and and do what what we think is our responsibility, uh, and maybe that's part of what heroism really is. It's not people being any. It's not like we're being Superman or Batman or Robin or anything like that. We're just doing things that we're asked to do. We're in a difficult situation. But people sometimes are called upon to do those kinds of things. So that was that was sort of the inspiration for writing this book was to just say, you know, we can all be heroes and we can create a, a culture in a way of helping each other uh, when when the um, situation calls for it. And uh, and we can all be heroes because that was sort of what I saw with COVID that, that we weren't necessarily any different from anybody else, but we were just willing to kind of do what we felt like we needed to do. 
and, and that that was what a lot of us were going to be called upon, not just the doctors and nurses, but um, the people who were bringing food to people and doing all kinds of other things that allowed us all to, to make it through the, the worst parts of COVID. I like that. I like that. So let's dive into the writing process. Uh, as you mentioned, largely this all happened. This is largely a true story. Um, where, yeah. where did you begin? Well, uh, so as far as the writing process goes, I've always felt like um, stories are important and stories of patients and stories of our relationship with patients. So um, I have told stories to my children growing up and I've told stories to my grandchildren and I've written stories as part of my editorials when, you know, so I've been an editor of a journal called Academic Medicine and I always felt like stories were part of how we um, kind of convey important uh, messages to our audiences. And, and sometimes the best way to do that is uh, to begin with a story. And, and so that was sort of how, how this occurred. I just started telling the story rather than to talk to people about heroism or courage or anything like that. I thought, all right, I'll just start telling the story and kind of see where it goes. Um, and, and bit by bit, it almost sort of wrote itself. Um, and, and that's sort of how I found a lot of stories go, is you, you sort of go down a road thinking you, you know where it's leading, and then it sort of starts taking some left turns and right turns, and it, and it starts taking you in um, unexpected directions. And, um, and that was sort of how this was. You know, I started with uh, telling the story about uh, what was happening in the mountain. And the next thing I knew, uh, we were really having um, these other side stories of uh, what was that conversation at uh, the top of the mountain? And then what happened to the people after uh, the most critical part of the rescue occurred? What was their relationship like? How did, you know, what were some of the consequences of actually having a relationship where you save someone's life, do you continue to um, have a relationship? And you know what? Do, what does that person feel like they owe you? What do you owe them? And you know what would that relationship be like? And then what if there's this complicating factor, as in this story, where um, the person who's involved in saving the other person falls in love with his girlfriend? Now what? You know what? Where, where do you go? Do you, um, do you kind of allow that to happen? Do you uh, not allow that? Um, and, uh, you know, where do you go with that? How does that complicate the, the relationship, which is a very close one when you're again, carrying someone over a mountain? Uh, you know, you're very close as two people's bodies are very intertwined. Um, well, where does that lead you when there's this other conflicting um, desire that may, um, you know, not may not be acceptable, may actually be a sign of betrayal of the trust between the two people? How do you struggle with that? How do you overcome that? What would you say was the hardest part to write, especially given that so much of this is so personal to you? Oh, I think probably the sex. <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, 
because um, there is some sex in, in the um, in the book, and um, it's kind of awkward to write about it. I mean, I'm a you know I'm a grandfather. <laughs> I'm a, you know a doctor, and you know how do you write about things like that in a way that is respectful and also realistic, and that um, you know, is um, conveys you know the meaning of the relationship, uh, and do it in a way that's that's not gross or, um, you know, uh, taking advantage of, you know, some of the uh, less what would I say you know, uh, less seemly aspects of of a um, of a book like this because really I I wanted the book to really. Uh, get at important questions and issues around uh, courage and um, so, and and heroism and and then even some of the things like betrayal and and uh, some of the complicating factors. So how do you write about sex when you're also trying to write about what at least I felt were important big issues that that are, are you know sort of connected to where we are in our lives right now in the United States, where I think all of us may be called upon to take uh, steps to do things that might put us at risk in different ways, you know, particularly some of the politics that are going on. Uh, so, you know, that was probably the most difficult part for me was writing about that and doing it in a way that I thought was respectful, but also didn't, um, do something that would uh, drive me away from some of these bigger issues. Hmm. I find it interesting that sex is the thing that kind of like, that was like the hurdle for you, especially as you, as you mentioned, you know, you're a grandfather, you're a doctor. This is all, this should all be familiar for you, but it's like, this was kind of the thing that kind of tripped you up a little bit. Well, it's, it's hard because I think, um, you know, we, as particularly as doctors, we're, it's not like we don't hear about people's sexual issues when they come, particularly for me as an emergency physician, there's probably hardly anything that um, I haven't seen or heard. And, um, you know, a lot of these things could be quite embarrassing. So it's not like um, the issues um, around sex are uh, impossible uh, to, to imagine or to, to talk about. But I think, again, relationships, particularly relationships between people, you know, life and death relationships are serious and they're serious issues. And even issues related to uh, putting your own life at risk are, are also very serious. And I didn't really want the sex to, to kind of draw away from the, you know, those serious issues. On the other hand, I think that there are, you know, sex and other kinds of uh, conflicts, you know, whether it's money or whether it's um, other kinds of benefits that people can get um, in doing things, uh, can can kind of drive you away from some of these really serious conversations about, um, you know, maybe doing things that are going to put your career or your life at risk. And I didn't want that to happen, so I, I was trying to find the balance. You know, how do you find the balance of discussing, uh, you know, a potential relationship with the woman who is involved with one of the people that you've rescued. Um, and how do you, um, you know, how do you talk about that in a way that doesn't, um, 
take away from these other very serious conversations. Mm-hmm. Now, as I mentioned before, you are no stranger to writing. You have published over 200 articles about medical ed- education, emergency health, and global health. You've also published two books, uh, La Clinica, which is a memoir of, of your experience as a volunteer in a rural Mexican clinic, and Atlas of Men, great title, by the way, which is an award-winning novel about a secret research project. What would you say was the real newness of writing Moonstone Hero? Well, so those other two books um, were about, I would say, very different topics. So one of them is, the first one is a memoir. And it's a memoir about my work in Mexico before I became a doctor. And, and I would say the main focus of that is the story of people and uh, the challenge of being an untrained person uh, who goes to a little clinic uh, expecting that you're, they're just going to be uh, an aide to a, uh, a doctor uh, working in this clinic and finding out, whoops, you know, you're actually going to be doing a lot more than you ever imagined. And this person who you went to help isn't actually really a doctor. And um, this um, little clinic, uh, you're going to actually be left um, on your own to try to do what you can for the people who don't have any other access to health care. What do you do? Do you just kind of do the best you can? Do you, um, you know, do you just leave? You know, what what's the right thing to do? And it really got me thinking a lot about Americans who go to other places and, you know, try to care for people in in those settings, hoping that they're going to do something useful, but potentially uh, maybe causing some harm in the process because now they're going to a place that may already have some modicum of medical care. Are you going to go in and hurt what already exists? Are you going to do something that disrupts the healthcare system? So it raises some questions about um, Americans and aid and going to those villages. That was that was what that book was about. And I think some very serious questions, because there are a lot of people who go and do global health, and it's really important, but it, do, it doesn't always go in the way that they think, and there are some unintended consequences. Alice of Men was a book that I wrote also based on some real things that happened. So I was... Um, I, I was a student at a, at a school that um, uh, during my uh, second or third week there uh, asked all of us to take off all of our clothes and we were then photographed naked and we didn't know why. Uh, and then the question was, what was that all about? You know, and it turned out that this was part of a research project, uh, as I found from conversations with the doctor who was in charge, in which there was a theory that you could predict people's uh, future um, leadership and capabilities based on their body type. It was uh, an old theory um, of eugenics where you could actually um, uh, classify people based on whether they were what's called uh, an endomorph, a mesomorph, or an ectomorph. So these various body types and, um, and that, that those body types are associated with personality types. Well, um, so that would mean that, again, if you were a mesomorph, you would be kind of a more of a leader. If you were more of a ectomorph, kind of tall, thin, you would be a nervous type. And then if you were uh, an endomorph, you would be kind of this jolly, funny kind of guy, a little overweight, um, make jokes and things like that. 
a lot of stereotypes there. But there was a book called Atlas of Men that a guy named Sheldon wrote that, that classified people in this way. And, and they, they did this kind of photography uh, to me and to my classmates um, at, at Phillips Exeter Academy, which is where that book was based on. Um, and they also did it at a bunch of colleges. They did it, I think, at uh, Princeton and Yale and at a bunch of colleges. And uh, th that was done with 18-year-olds. And it was actually a, some, uh, an expose in the New York Times that published this. So that uh, book was sort of an exploration of some of the thinking that, um, that existed during the time of the 50s and 60s and 70s. In fact, this particular um, uh, book was based upon pictures that were taken of me. This was 19, early 1960s. So, you know, there was still, this was still going on. It actually went on at Exeter until about 1971 or 72 when they finally got girls there and the girls rebelled and wouldn't let them take those pictures, which is interesting. That's what that book was about. Alice of Men, you know, was exploring a different thing. You know, I was, again, I was really concerned about the whole issue of uh, uh, are we willing to do the things that it's going to take to save each other from this pandemic? And how, how do we um, get people to, to do that? And my recollect, you know, my, my, the revelation that in fact, people were willing to do that and they were willing to do it because it was sort of what they were trained to do. And if we just gave them enough recognition and um, sort of support uh, to do those things that they were gonna come along and they were gonna do these very courageous things and put their lives at risk. And uh, that was quite amazing to me that that would happen. And that maybe if we could just encourage uh, a culture where we were looking out for each other and if someone was in danger that we were willing to help them, maybe we could you know, accomplish other things because I could see other dangers coming down the road like uh, you know, global climate change and things that um, you know, other challenges that we were gonna have to face as a society, they were gonna be hard and maybe you know, this pandemic and the uh, courage that people showed in addressing it might be able to teach us something about how to address some of these other problems. That, so that was a little different inspiration. That's what I wrote it for. And then, of course, the story sort of started going in other directions from what I had planned. I mean, I didn't plan it to go exactly the way it went, but it just went that way. And so I sort of followed that. All right. I want to ask about the medical student in this book. Obviously, that's you. But um, would you say these two characters are very distinct, yourself and the student? Well, so the medical student in the book is somewhat different from me. Um, so in that, in the book, this medical student is a little bit more, um, what would I say, compulsive, has also some issues related to alcohol. Um, uh, so... I would say that I, I kind of modeled uh, the medical student on some other people that I knew who were a little bit different from me. Um, and um, same thing of uh, some of the other characters in the book. So yes, uh, you know, there was this person who uh, had the pulmonary edema. He wasn't exactly like the character in the book. Um, and the same thing with the woman 
who was in the book, there, there was certainly a love interest in the actual um, climb, but the, the woman that is in the book is a little bit different. So yeah, I, um, and I'm, you know, the book in the, in the uh, book, the doctor becomes a critical care pulmonary doctor. I'm an emergency physician. It's a little, so those are different specialties, a little related, but somewhat different. Hmm. Have you been able to reach out to other folks who are with you on this original climb? Well, so the reality is that I did actually run into the person who I saved. And so that part at the very end did occur. Um, and it did kind of happen sort of as described um, at the Beta Breakers race, um, which is kind of amazing in a thing. And in a, in a, in a, uh, uh, as an example of, you know, an unlikely event to occur. So, yeah, and, and, and in a way, some of the awkwardness that occurs um, in the book um, did actually happen when I did run into this particular person. And, um, and, and it was sort of part of, uh, as I wrote the book, um, part of my reflection of the fact that I think when you are involved in, in actually personally saving someone's life, and there's so much, when you think about how much they feel that they owe you, there's never going to be a way to totally um, repay that because, you know, it's, it's just too great a burden. And in fact, it, no one should ever feel like they should pay that back. And, and there are other examples in my life where I've been involved in saving someone's life. I've gone to see them. And uh, most of the time, they don't even remember that I was involved with that because they're so sick, um, often semi-comatose, that they don't remember it. And, and I don't think we should ever expect anybody to feel like they owe you anything. I, you know, that's part of our job. And we shouldn't be feeling that, that this, because it, and it really is too big a burden, frankly. And and I and I'm I'm always I feel grateful when I can have you know the opportunity the privilege to actually be involved in in saving someone's life. You know, sometimes it's a heart attack. It can be someone with a ruptured aorta. I mean, there there are different kinds of life threatening crises that happen to people. I can in my own life, it's probably happened twenty or thirty times where I've been involved in you know someone who was actively dying in front of me, and I was able to do something and it really changed the trajectory. And, you know, there've been opportunities for me to go back and see them and have a conversation. And, and I, and I, and I don't feel like, you know, I ever want anybody to feel like, Hey, you know, you owe me for this, uh, that that's just not appropriate, but I feel very fortunate to be able to do that. It kind of gives meaning to my life. And I think those of us in emergency medicine or critical care or surgery, you know, we we're very privileged to be able to, to do that, I think, you know, but the, in the book, it was a little bit different because I was really putting my own life at risk and trying to carry someone over a mountain in the middle of the night in the cold. And, and I almost did die. I really did feel like we were potentially all going to die. And that's a little bit different. And I think COVID was a little bit different too, because I think we were all who went in particularly early on, we were really putting our lives at risk in a way very different. Uh, from what usually happens in the emergency department or a critical care unit. And, and I think, um, you know, there's really something to learn from that. Absolutely. What do you think you learned from this? 
Well, I'm, I'm still learning. I mean, I'm still thinking about that. I think what I, one thing I learned was that um, I was really grateful to, to be able to be there with my uh, residents. You know, so where I was working, the emergency department where I work was in Phoenix, and we have an emergency medicine residency. And uh, one of the things I learned was um, how much um, I was grateful for our younger generation and how amazing they are. And the fact that they they didn't hesitate to go in and do things that could have killed them. Um, and I guess I didn't, I mean, I've always felt like it was wonderful to be side by side with my, the medical students and the residents, but um, they were incredible and they are incredible people. And I just think we're very fortunate that this younger generation is coming along and I'm, I feel like they, maybe they'll save us for the future, but I, so that's what I learned is that we're very fortunate for this younger generation, who they are. I don't know how they got to be how they are, but they're wonderful. And being able to be side by side with them and share that experience, uh, that's, that was really wonderful to be able to experience that and learn that together. Okay. Is there another book in the works? I think so. I, I, I don't want to talk about it yet. But I, I think there's there's more that I that I want to write about. I mean, there's a lot of issues around health and healthcare that I think we really need to be grappling with uh, for the future. I also think that the, you know there's a lot of challenges coming down the road for all of us in terms of how we are going to have to be called upon to to make some sacrifices, and and I think my generation is going to have to do that. I think. I don't think we're going to be able to just retire and go and play golf. I I think that that you know a lot of the people in my generation we were sort of hippies and we were radicals and we were you know politically engaged in different ways. And um, and though a lot of people now are older and some of them have medical problems and they're not quite as um, robust as they once were, uh, they also have money and they have power, and and I think they have the opportunity. Uh, to make a difference. And so I guess um, probably the next book in some way is going to grapple with some of that and hopefully provide, uh, you know, at least some characters that are actually going to go out and do some of that and maybe help us um, see the way that we could contribute to the, uh, you know, to create a future for these wonderful people who are coming along and, and who are so, so brave uh, during COVID. I, I think we have a responsibility to that generation. And, and I think we need to figure out how to do that effectively. So that's probably what I want to write about. And you know what? I cannot wait to read it. Well, David, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate this for the folks at home. You go to davidpsklar.com for more information and certainly get the books, leave reviews. We keep talking about it. I'll keep talking about it, but this is always key for, for that, for that, for the interaction and just bringing everything up. And David, Thanks again. Appreciate this. Yeah, thanks a lot. It was nice meeting you, Max. All right. Hey, this is singer-songwriter and mental health advocate Stephanie Mathias. Be sure to check out my single Hero Side, available on all platforms now, and listen to Citywide Blackout, your home for the best indie artists. Phew, what a journey today, huh? Well, that brings this episode to a close. You can follow the show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under CitywideMax. 
get at me at citywidemax at yahoo.com and check the show out wherever you find your favorite podcast, as well as every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio. That's all for now, and I'll see you next time.